welcome back to another episode of Ladies First. I'm Taylor and I'll be your hostess today. I have a special guest with us, um, Signe Wilkinson. She is a great cartoonist who has drawn a lot and has had a lot of ideas about the world and culture and the way society has been in the past few decades. Hello there. It's nice to meet everybody. Yes, Signe Wilkinson has had a very illustrious career, pun intended, and she is the first female cartoonist to win the Pulitzer Prize for editorial cartooning um, back in 1992. Her work is still ongoing. She actually had two recent publications in the past few years. Um, her story, 90 Cartoons in Celebration of the 19th Amendment, which I actually read and it's awesome. Personal plug. And also she did the cartoons for Jonathan Zimmerman's book, Free Speech and Why You Should Give a Damn. And so Sydney Wilkinson, if you have seen her work at all online, because it tends to go viral, is you probably have seen a, the cartoon of a pregnant woman with her child in the rain and a congressman is holding an umbrella over her very pregnant stomach. And that image is very relevant in these times in the United States with the Texas abortion law, which is essentially an abortion ban. And so we will be getting into controversial topics because political cartoons, they generate a lot of discussion. So, Signe, if I may ask, what inspired you with originally to go into cartooning? Well, I'm an accidental cartoonist. I uh, graduated with the all-important BA in English and uh, no, um, no discernible skill or path forward. I took many, many jobs. And one of them was as a freelancer for a newspaper, a little news, country newspaper outside of Philadelphia, where I did township supervisor meetings and school board meetings, and I loved it. I loved going in and talking to people and listening to their, their stories, writing it down, and then seeing it the very next day in print. Uh, on paper. Uh, this is way, way, way before seeing it instantaneously online in little mm -hmm. diodes. But um, I, I started, like anybody who's listening who is at all artistic or has artistic kids know that you start doodling in the sides of your notes. And that's what I did at these, um, these uh, meetings. And the doodles just got bigger and bigger, and the newspaper started running them uh, in a little column that had tidbits uh, about the sort of things going on in the town. And then I started making them into full-fledged cartoons, and they they started running them because they, it, at the time, I mean, it was just fun to be in journalism. It wasn't corporate. It was. Uh, this it was a you know a really small town and um, uh, that was great and actually the first cartoon that got me into trouble was a cartoon on um, abortion and um, the editor of the paper hadn't quite realized what he was getting into because there was a big Catholic community in the town. Mm -hmm. They were not as excited about seeing my work in print as I was. <laughs> and so the editor heard, heard about it. And, you know, that's how I got started. And it was just, you know, it was 
it was fun to go after stuff that um, and and make it visible. You know, instead of just writing about it, you have one one square, one little rectangle in the paper, and without words or with very few words, you have to get your your point across. It's a great challenge, but uh, when you feel like you've nailed it, it's really super satisfying. Definitely, I don't draw myself, but I have a lot of respect for visual medium mediums and just there's something so satisfying when you see a complex idea distilled into something very understandable and communicable like it's like i see what you did there person and i respect you and i like applaud your intelligence like for me it kind of similar to, it reminds me of bill nye and his how he can break down complex science topics for kids cartoonists do that with social commentary they're able to break it down in a way that anyone can understand and make something more of a conversation because there's just so much you have to parse through sometimes with these topics. And in fact, the really, the really touchy um, problems that we have are uh, people have pretty firm feelings about them. And so the, they, the cartoon catches that. Um, People, some people don't like them, don't agree with the cartoon's point of view, but still they disagree with it because it's hit them hard. <laughs> and um, it's, uh, it's a way of opening up conversation on, on the issue. Did you have any like, like influences in mind when you got into political cartooning, like other cartoonists or artists or political activists at the time? Well, um, I mean, I grew up, uh, uh, I was in high school when Martin Luther King was shot and uh, then the, you know, the, the uh, uh, Robert F. Kennedy was shot, then there were, there, you know, a whole ton of political turmoil around the election and Vietnam was going on. So there was, you know, it was something it was, everybody was talking about it. It wasn't a quiet time politically. And it was, it was at least as polarized as now. I mean, I know people say, you know, will we ever recover from this? And it, it feels, you know, it feels pretty, um, a, divide, a divided country now. But, um, you know, I'm hopeful that eventually things will simmer down and we'll find a, uh, find a path forward I don't think maybe this weekend, but <laughs> maybe sometime soon. That's hopeful for me to hear that back in the 60s and 70s, things were as divided as they are now, because I've only really known a polarized, divided country because I was born in the late 90s. So for me, some of my earliest memories are of post 9-11 mm -hmm. and just the Bush errors and how divided and intense they were. Well, yeah, we were divided and intense, but the, the, there was the underlying joining together after 9-11. Our country had been attacked, and the people who died, the 2,000 people who died were Republicans and Democrats and independents, and they were young and old and rich and poor. And um, I think that was a real uh, time when you just went, okay, you know, we're, <laughs> we're not going to be nitpicking about, you know, who was, uh, you know, who was red or blue. Um, I mean, obviously, then shortly thereafter, when 
we got into the war, uh, you know, Afghanistan and then Iraq disastrously, then, you know, we were back to our good old argumentative selves. But um, there was that feeling that, you know, we were one country and we had to, we had to muddle through together for, for a while anyway. It's so interesting to hear that something like 9-11 brought everyone together with this pandemic where everyone's divided. It's, it's interesting is how I'll put it. Yeah, well, the, the other th interesting thing about the pandemic is even at, at least the first year, we were all in it together. We were all inside together. <laughs> I mean, you know, nobody, nobody was working. The, the streets of my of Philadelphia were, were deserted. It, people were not out walking around. Um, so it's funny how, you know, we sit in our boxes experiencing the same thing and wishing we could be outside and then also wishing, you know, it was saying, yeah, having our, our political dis, uh, divisions, but they're all inside. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I will say one other thing that I want, it, that, that I was uh, working abroad in the mid 70s and um, during, there was a huge OPEC oil crisis I mean, it was a big deal. Um, and I came back to the United States then, and we had just, you know, the, uh, Nixon had just resigned, and the war was, you know, they were lifting people off the roof of the Saigon embassy. That was a terrible time. I mean, that was a de very depressing time of loss for the country. Um, and, you know, we, again, uh, we didn't solve everything, but um, it got better after that. We had a boring president in, um, well, uh, Gerald Ford, and then uh, uh, Jimmy Carter. And <laughs> so, it, you know, you, can, you could disagree with them, but they were, they were not um, divisive people. They were like Maylock's presidents. <laughs> Uh, beige presidents. Beige. So in regards to politics, I have a question for you with cartooning. Um, so when you're doing a, something as controversial as abortion, how do you go about deciding like what images advance the cause of pro-choice um, and what images might only inflame the conflict? Good question. Uh, I think I, it, it depends on what day and what has just happened uh, as to what um, I want to do. But, um, and, and I have to say, just for your viewers, I have retired. I, I retired uh, from my newspaper after almost 40 years last, um, the end of last year. And then I was doing three cartoons a week and through the spring, but you just can't do three a week. It's, you just get out of the rhythm or I just got out of the rhythm but um so I stopped um in the spring altogether uh, but then when this this Texas uh, abortion thing happened uh law happened I I was just so mad I had to go back and I just drew one and put it up on social media we did pretty well and it it was like cathartic for me, 
but it is not, it was not a cartoon that, um, uh, it was a funny cartoon, but it was not one that was sympathetic to the, uh, the great state of Texas, or at least the men of the great state of Texas who were on their, um, in their state legislature. And so it wasn't, it wasn't meant to um, be uh, a love and peace cartoon. It was, uh, it was an angry cartoon that um, these guys are uh, solving the abortion problem by making the woman whom they have impregnated <laughs> bear the baby. And it, they don't have to do a damn thing except go out and raise money and get reelected. So it, it, that's, that's what got me on this last one. It was just so blatant um, about who was, you know, who was, who was behind everything, uh, behind the legislation. So I did, that's the kind that's just raw, um, angry political cartooning. Uh, but I, you know, again, I, it was a funny image. And so they had to laugh a little bit, even if it was a wincing laugh. But there are other times when um, I do want to try to make a more subtle point. And um, I've, I've sent you, and I'm sorry that we aren't visual so people can could see others that I've done that are more comments about um, the general um, abortion generally and how it affects people. Um, so you can do it both ways. Um, which I, image I, was it specifically so I can describe it to our listeners? The one, the Texas one? Oh, so the, the new Texas one you mentioned um, for our listeners, it's a guy dressed as like a typical cowboy Texas cowboy, but he's wearing a very tight metal chastity belt. And he looks very uncomfortable, like very much a look of surprise. And the caption is, Texas ends all abortions. And I appreciate it because I feel that discussion is, that topic is lost on the discussion is men are as responsible for pregnancy as a woman, biology, and you know, it's much easier for a man to impregnate like 10 women in the span of a month than for a woman because just a woman can only get pregnant once in a month within the span of nine months. If she gets pregnant, that's nine months she's pregnant. But a guy for that whole nine months, one woman is pregnant can impregnate so many other women. And it's this whole thing we lose sight of is it's not, the biology is not balanced. The cost of the toll of pregnancy versus impregnating and how you can go about impregnating versus becoming pregnant. And so I really appreciate humor that takes swipes at the men because <laughs> they don't get enough. You. You're welcome. <laughs> I, I didn't get that many fan letters from um, men in Texas, I have to say. Yeah, another cartoon she did that takes swipe at men is one from 2019 called New, Men's Way for Abortion Ban States. And it's just men wearing large condoms that go from like head to knee. And I also like that because it's just, it really hits home that it'd be so easy to solve the, the problem, quote unquote, problem of abortion if men just use condoms. They're sort of like male burkas. I was thinking of them. How do you like wearing one of those guys? Yeah, that was like, it was hard for me the past few weeks, you know, with 
the news of the Taliban and how that's going to affect women's rights in Afghanistan and then our rights in the United States being impacted a few weeks later with the abortion ban and how the Supreme Court did that basically without listening to any arguments because it was a shadow docket decision, which means it was done in the middle of the night, very secretly and hush hush. And it's just, it's hard being a woman right now. And it's great with political cartoons is the cartoon acknowledges the pain and the rage while also making you laugh. And that's, I think, a really powerful thing about humor is it can acknowledge the negative while uplifting you. The other thing I want to say about uh, drawing uh, on this and many and many topics is that um, it, from the very beginning of my career, I put women in the cartoons as agents. In the in beforehand, it was all men. It, you know, in cartooning generally, it was the men were the actors. They were the bit parts. They were the main actors. They were the, the cast of characters. And if there was a crowd scene, there'd be a few women in the crowd. And uh, right from the beginning, I put, a, a, you know, I used women as the reaction person. Um, and I would use uh, uh, African-American women as uh, uh, characters as well, so that it was uh, a more diverse uh, cast of characters um, and that had its um, pluses and minuses. I have, I had a colleague and this is the great thing about working as a, at a newspaper with a very uh, diverse group of people working there but I, I was t actually I, I hope nobody sees my early cartoons because I was so pathetic as an artist. I, I you know, was really um, really primitive and at the time, the technology was that you, you, you it was very difficult to do shadows. Um, if and you're doing only black and white, we didn't have color, and you, it was hard to do shading, um, or it was at least hard for me. And they had, um, uh, they had this screen that you could put on and cut out that was just black dots so that it would pick up you know, the, the camera would make it just look like a gray screen. But um, I, I was doing like little lines on the side of the head to make a little shadow. And my, um, uh, this colleague of mine, David Williams, would come over and go, look at my face. Does my face have little lines on it? No, it does not. <laughs> and then, you know, he uh, picked out peanuts with the little black character and peanuts and said, do it this way. And it, again, that's um, part of the way you learn is uh, have people who will be honest with you and tell you where, when you need to improve. Yeah, that's definitely something that I was, I ended up noticing and thinking about or reading her story and just thinking about, oh yeah, I want to do the, how they can, you know, shade and communicate that someone is of African-American descent because you can only, if you're just doing it in black and white, you can only do so many shades. And, you know, you want to be able to communicate someone as, of, is not white, so you can acknowledge these issues and the complexities, but you also don't want to like, do like stereotypical drawings, like stereotypical features. Have you like seen or um, just worked with drawings that make you like question 
the way we depict people like have you seen like seen drawings like of women or people of color that have made you go that's not right like that seems exaggerated for bad reason well of course this is a really hot topic right now and um you know exaggeration it, car cartoons are exaggerations of of everything but uh what i tried to do is um you know uh black hair is just different than my hair which is like barely hair anymore it's just like straight and thin and so and you know the the shapes and the fabulous um hairstyles that many you know black philadelphians anywhere wear um you can use them and they're great indicators that it's not um you know it's not missy from brynmar it's you know someone who um uh, has come from a different background and in a city like philadelphia you have to have lots of different people because you know that's who walks the streets we're not all all one group so there are ways you can do it without um uh you know being uh racially or i try i'm i mean i'm have my limits but you know try to be happy to draw them because they're, you know, they're different faces and they're fun to draw. Um, I mean, just like a long-nosed patrician Boston Brahmin is fun to draw in, uh, if you need to draw him. Um, or a Dolly Parton, you know, she's got assets and you can't minimize them or she's not Dolly Parton. <laughs> So that, you know, that's, that's true for all sorts of different people. And I'm, I mean, I, I sort of think it's, it's great to have that kind of diversity available to us. Which again, hits home that a key to good art is just looking around you and just paying attention to the details. People watching. That's that really, really true. And um, it, it, it's, um, you know, just if you're sitting in a, in a studio someplace, these days, there's really no excuse for just, for not looking around. I mean, with Google, you just, you can Google anyone and get dozens of images. You can do groups of people and get dozens of images. And you can just look out the window if you live in the city and see what people are wearing. I mean, that's another fun thing. I, it, when I got started, people didn't wear um, you know, these incredibly complicated sneakers. <laughs> they were just sneakers. And uh, now there's, you know, you have to have swishes and swirls and colors and big, you know, big, he, the, the soles are big. Um, so, but just paying attention to how uh, dress changes is important in cartooning because the dress by itself indicates a lot about um class or um occupation or whatever um and so since we're still on the topic of like images and how they communicate things um have you ever i know of course the cartoons you draw would of course draw ire for certain groups because you address complex topics that get people heated have you ever done a cartoon where in hindsight you may have fanned the flames unintentionally because you may have 
missed the mark on your message? Well, I have definitely fanned the flames and on a variety of cartoons. And it, it it's not always so bad to start a fire. Um, and I'll, uh, I'll describe one, which I, I, I didn't have, I didn't know we'd get on it, but I, I didn't send you. Um, but it was the Miss Universe contest. Um, it was in, I don't know, 20, 2005 or so. It was in, um, it was in Africa. Um, it was a big deal. And um, there, the, it was after 9-11 and the whole, the sort of the Islamic world was really exploding. Um, and there, uh, there were, uh, big riots where it was being held. People were killed over um, having a Miss Universe where there were uh, bathing suit, you know, uh, women in bathing suits and and uh, sexy ball gowns. Um, this was taken as an affront to uh, by um, again uh, some of the radical, more radical Muslim. Uh, in in the area, uh, and you know, people died, um, and so I did um, the Miss Radical Islam uh, uh, Miss Amer uh, World. It was World Contest Miss World Contest, and I had women in burqas, and it was like. Miss can't go to school, Miss not allowed to read, you know, Miss, um, and the last one was Miss waiting to be stoned because there had just been in, I think it was Saudi Arabia at the time, uh, a stoning, a woman was stoned to death for some transaction, uh, some alleged crime. I mean, it was just horrific. And so that, that cartoon, it was a simple black and white cartoon and I had put radical in it because I didn't mean for all Muslims. I just meant for this 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 sector that um, had had gone so so violent. But um, the Muslim community in Philadelphia really, really, really did not like it and picketed the paper and. Um, uh, you know, they came in, but I mean, this has happened before for other things, but so we had them in, you know, the, the, the spokespeople came in, they talked to us about it. We ran letters to the editor. This is again, pre-internet. So there were actual letters to the editor. And then um, what happened was that it got people starting to talk about, it, it sort of broke open a conversation about Islam and Christianity and how we were all going to get along. Um, and at the time, it was the start of a, a, a pretty big interfaith um, movement in Philadelphia, not because of my cartoon alone by any means, but it, um, it sort of, that it, it was one thing that sparked a lot of discussion. And it went back and forth in, again, on our letters page, um, and right now we have a we have a very strong interfaith community in Philadelphia that uh, defends each other, you know, and each other's relig religions. 
Um, so I see cartoons not as the end of a discussion, but the start of one. I'm not the last word. My readers are the last word. And they're the ones who um, come back at me and criticize my cartoons. And then other people come and criticize them and it, 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 it starts, starts a conversation. So I, that's happened on a number of different issues. Um, a lot around religion. Um, religion is a very, obviously, very deeply felt and therefore touchy. But if religion goes wandering into the political sphere, religion has to be treated just like anybody else. And sorry, but that's just the way it is. This is a democracy. Definitely, it reminded me of one of the cartoons we were thinking about, which was um, one I had in mind to talk about was on, so trigger warning, real quick for our listeners. This is about the Catholic Church, if I see where I'm going. And so you did a cartoon a few a while back, called, and it was a judge for the Granger and church child abuse, and the Pope was looking at him and saying, could we wrap this up? I'm due to instruct our legislators on abortion. And it's just a great summary of the hypocrisy of a powerful, very influential institution like the Catholic Church, allowing for the systemic abuse of children for decades, covering it up, but then, you know, controlling women's bodies and just that whole mess. Mm -hmm. It summed it up very well. So thumbs up for me on that. <laughs> Thank you. Um, well, I, um, our religion editor at the Daily News once came to me in the late 90s, and you'll be surprised to know the various religions have top 10 lists of anti-Catholics, anti-Islam, anti-Jews. And one year I made the list all three. <laughs> he said, congratulations, trifecta. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. I just, I, I mean, the, the funny thing is I, I uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm not somebody who rejects religion at all. And so um, uh, I'm happy to talk, hey, you know, I, I go and, and I've spoken at, you know, many churches over the years and um, so. And I think what you did with um, the Miss Eat World cartoon is key, where you made sure to include the word radical in the caption to stress that you aren't critiquing the religion, the religion as a whole, but only the people who are using it as an excuse for violence. Yes, and it's the same with Christianity. You know, we are seeing that right now with abortion and the quote-unquote pro-life side and just the Christian extremism in this country in general and how it's affecting politics today. It's the idea that even something like religion can't be held to a pedestal. Well, I, I think religions have the perfect right to teach whatever they want uh, as part of their theology. Um, that's what churches do. But when they go to the government and ask that their particular point of view becomes law, that's when they become open to um, cartoonists and others. I mean, 
they, they are just one of many petitioners that go to, in our case, Harrisburg, to um, get laws passed. And their laws will um, cover every woman in the state, whether they're that religion or not. Yeah, another of your cartoons that I really appreciate that um, when you sent me was about Amy Conan, Coney Barrett's you know, nomination, and it's, you know, the caption of this cartoon says, Judge Amy Coney Barrett's halo, and it's her sitting at the table with the microphone, and her halo is a coat hanger, and it really sums up just how judges can try to be impartial, but they're always going to bring their views to the table, whether they admit to it or not. And, you know, we had a right to be afraid and concerned. And I appreciate you summing that up. Well, that was also very, very controversial because Catholics took it as an attack on her Catholicism. And so let me have, they let me have it on that. And, and that's one where um, we're, and you know, even while I was doing it, I was thinking, do I really want to do this? Because I knew, I mean, it, I knew it was going to uh, be greeted that way by many people. Um, so it, 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 it's one that I obviously ended up drawing and publishing, um, but it, there, one, one person wrote and said, I wish your mother had used a coat hanger on you. That's terrible. <laughs> well, it, I mean, you know, he felt this, that same thing about my cartoon, that it was terrible. And so he returned fire. And I, you know, that's fine. That, that's his right to... Um, to come back at me, and in fairness, I had a I had a spot in the newspaper that went out to thousands of people. He has a, he has one email to me, and so um, that's fine. You know, I just said thank you for your <laughs> well reasoned opinion, and uh, uh, that was that. In other words, cartoonists must develop a thick skin. I think. Yes. Yeah. Do you think um, social media and the instantaneous nature and the way Twitter makes creators more accessible to the masses, do you think that could possibly affect um, cartooning and cartoonists feeling brave enough to address complex topics? Well, um, uh... You know, if you have to worry about it, it's, it's, um, you just, let's see, I, I'm hoping you'll just edit all this out as I try to collect my thoughts. <laughs> but um, it's, how should I put it? No, I don't think, um, okay, start, just ask me again. Do you think sites like social media in general, but especially sites like Twitter, um, could possibly make cartoonists more reticent to address controversial topics? Well, cartoonists are a certain brand of people. They go, oh, look, 5,000 hate mails. Yes, we've done it. <laughs> so, um, 
the actually being on social media kind of frees you up because if you're in a, a newspaper, that's a, uh, it's a, it's a printed piece of paper that's going out to a really diverse audience, you know, anybody who, who buys the newspaper, even if they just wanted the sports and they stumble upon your stupid cartoon and they get all upset. Um, but in, in the internet, what often happens is that, you know, you get a lot of likes because the people who follow you already agree with you. Um, but I had one um, recently about Afghanistan. I won't go into it, but um, a lot of people didn't like it. Said it was stupid and ignorant and apolitical or ahistorical. Um, and um, and you know then it, it got rolling, and so you got you got even more people chiming in. And at, at some point, you know, I'm not going to be responding to every one of those. Uh, uh, and they get their say, they get to denounce me. It's all, it's all over. It's, it goes on for a week or so. And then people move on to something else. Um, so I, I think um, you just have to weather it. Um, there, I think they're very few cartoons that have changed the course of human history. <laughs> so, uh, and the, uh, the attention span of angry readers is, is fairly, fairly, that, you know, people move on to other targets. So, but, oh, go but ahead. I, but, but, but you're right. I mean, the internet does change things a lot. It changes the dynamics a lot because you can instantaneously get a crowd together, either for or against something. And uh, yeah, so whatever it is you do, it's magnified, it's faster. And as I was saying before, it's, it's a little harder, like in the paper, you know, they would, the first batch of letters would come in saying, this is a horrible cartoon. And then the second batch would come in defending the cartoon. And then the third batch would go, yeah, ba 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 ba, and then it would be like a conversation got started, um, where I don't see conversations starting on Twitter. I, it, they just stay balkanized. You know, the people for it or stay for it. The people who are against it stay against it. I may be missing something. Is there? Is there? Are there places where people tweet out peaceful, conciliatory? messages. I've never seen that on Twitter, but it's also Twitter and it's kind of built on reactionary extreme point of view. So who knows? I mean, I've never see seen that kind of stuff. I've seen like interesting threads where like one expert is talking, is like talking on a subject. Someone is like expert, but what about this? And the expert then gives an answer. But that's like rare and usually isn't what goes viral because on Twitter, what goes viral is usually what is the most inflammatory. Because Twitter really likes the fire. Mm -hmm. So speaking of controversy, so you know, abortion at its core is a healthcare issue, specifically about the rights of women and the rights to equal healthcare. And with something like abortion and any potential imagery I have a question for you. 
how do you figure out how to go about in good taste in depicting a medical procedure? Very good question. Um, uh, I have, uh, I, I meant to send you this. That I, I had one with uh, Chief Justice John Roberts as the physician and you're looking at him between the legs of a woman whose knees are up in the stirrups. And so he's clearly looking at her um, as, a, as a, you know, as a doctor. Um, and um, that, did, that, but she was covered with, you know, a, a robe with the little, little designs on it that the medical robes always mm -hmm. have. So it wasn't, there wasn't nudity, <clears throat> but it was clear what's happening. And I think people get uncomfortable with that. But if men get uncomfortable with that, it's because they can't imagine that happening to them. I mean, <laughs> but that's how it feels as a woman to have, um, or at least I do, uh, uh, having men talk about your reproductive uh, tracks in public um, and and making laws about it, you, you feel very exposed and and um, so I I have done um, some cartoons in a gynecologist's office that uh, give give that sense. Yeah, I think what the key is what you were talking about is the point of view where it's you're on the woman's point of view where you're the one in the stirrups looking at this person who is in control of the situation to be honest and it's it's it, it really heightens the vulnerability because yes it reminds me of actually science of the land which i've heard is very groundbreaking because you're so often in um starling's pov and that you see the men looking at you you know, the male gaze and all of its issues looking at you and how uncomfortable that is. Yes, um, you actually sent me a similar image where you depicted a senator in his stirrups, stirrups, where it's like, dear senators, imagine the stirrup on the other foot. And you had a, a Supreme Court justice saying to the figure, relax, I'll be making your reproductive decision, sir. Mm -mm. And it's, just, I feel so bad for the dude in the stirrups because it is an uncomfortable thing, you know, just like, you know, in the stirrups, someone's looking at you and they have a tool and it's just so uncomfortable. And it's, and I think highlighting the medical aspects of abortion and female healthcare in general is a good way to like stress just how private this issue is and personal. Well, again, because it's private, when it's depicted in public, that does make people, I mean, there is an uncomfortable uh, feeling looking at it. And that can't always be avoided. Definitely, yeah. I was think when I was writing up notes for this, I was thinking about how often I've seen abortion talked about on TV, which is not often, especially in a way that centers the woman's feelings, whether, mm -hmm good or bad or neutral yeah because i i mean it's i don't you know i don't remember that many women coming on and and talking frankly about their abortions some have and 
they're great when they do that. But, um, you know, it, as you said, it's kind of a private, it's a very private decision. And um, even people who think it's the great, it's what they need to do, aren't necessarily 100% down with it. Uh, you know, there may be extenuating circumstances where they kind of wish they could, but, you know, if it, if it um, if they weren't going to be able to uh, take care of the baby or the person, you know, if they were raped or uh, attacked, it's a whole different thing about then uh, a couple who, who want a child. So. Yeah. Yeah. I was the product of a wanted pregnancy, but my mother could have died from her pregnancy. So it's just like mm. pregnancy is one of the most intense things a human body can go through. And I don't think people understand that. Very true. Uh, yeah, oh, that's very true. And I mean, the number of women who died, died in childbirth, uh, you know, in our history is, is uh, immense. Uh, it's not an easy thing. And that, uh, that's actually a cartoon I did um, when God, the great pro-lifer, uh, was in charge. And it was a graveyard where, you know, Susan B., you know, died in childbirth, uh, Rebecca G., um, you know, uh, died at uh, six months old. And, um, you know, the, the, if you just left it up to nature, um, a, lot of, a lot of children would, would be dying at very young ages and women would be dying in childbirth. Definitely. That reminds me of a other cartoon you did called Punishment for Abortion. And it's showing the woman in prison and the doctor in prison, but not the, not the biological father. And just, that's something like, doctors are gonna be penalized for this, and that's gonna have a huge ripple effect, because if you arrest doctors, that's suddenly a bunch of patients who lose access to medical care. Right. Like, that was a thing, because this is a really great documentary from the 90s people should watch called called when abortion was illegal, directed by a woman who had an illegal abortion when she was young, and she interviews survivors who, women who are like in their 80s or 90s, who, before Roe v. Wade, and that was something that came up multiple times, is women would have to go through that alone, usually, finding an illegal abortion, because their doctors wouldn't do it for them, because their doctors didn't want to go to jail and leave their patients without help very sad because doctors should be allowed to treat their patients because it's a medical concern. Oh, oh, one of the sort of ironic things right now with Texas is that uh, by making the, the uh, procedure so, um, so difficult and, and if you're after six, six weeks, you're, you're sort of out of luck. And now Mexico is, is saying that abortion is legal so people can go the other way across the border they have to go to mexico to get an abortion which a friend of uh, one of my best friends in college that's where she went when she needed an abortion because it was before it was legal and safe and where we were living um and i just i feel like you know we just went back 40 years yeah like a memo memo to the Texas state legislature, women will find a way to have an abortion if they really, really need one. 
Indeed. And it's like, I always hate the argument, but what if that unborn child would have been the scientist who cured cancer? And it's like, yes, but what if the woman who got pregnant and then had a child she didn't want would have been the one who cured cancer, but she couldn't because she had a child she had to take care of and she couldn't then afford to go to school and Good point. Very good point. I like it. I'll steal it for my next cartoon. (laughs) (laughs) Like, um, in the documentary, um, there's a really sad case they go into where there was this one dancer, I think her name was Lola Huth, for like the New York dance company or something, like one of the big dance companies back in the day. And they interviewed her sister because she had died from a self-induced abortion because she was on an IUD, but birth control failed and she got pregnant. And the doctor was like, this, if you have this child, there will probably be major birth complications. And, if, you know, like it wouldn't come out healthy and everything. So she wanted an abortion, but the doctor wouldn't give it to her. And he said, if you have a miscarriage and come to me, I can then treat you legally. And it didn't work. So she tried it again on her own and she hit a vein when she was trying to induce an abortion and bled to death. And she had a young child who lost her mother, who was, I think, interviewed for a different abortion documentary on children who lost their mothers to illegal abortions because so many women who did get illegal abortions before Roe v. Wade were mothers who got pregnant and were like, I I can't have another kid. I can't afford it. I can't take care of them. And that's something that's really lost is, you know, you had this great dancer who would have had a great career and she would have been a great mother and that was taken away because the people making these laws are not the ones who can get pregnant. Well, uh, yeah. And they're not the ones who end up taking care of the baby who, who is born. No, um, that's like, I'm very much involved in like leftist politics online. I see a lot of discussion from the left side of politics. And it's been very frustrating just seeing the discussion around abortion right now with Texas because it's just really missing home how men fail women and children. And that's one of the reasons why I appreciate how you take the punches at men in your cartoons because they aren't called out enough, you know. We hear so much about, what about the father's rights? We forget out the woman whose own body is being lost, like her agency. Well, the, um, yeah, you know, it's, uh, I have to agree with you on that. We, it, we had in Philadelphia a really tragic um, incident with a, a, an abortion clinic, which was just run terribly and um, it was mostly poor people who came to this person and even though it was legal um, it was uh, it was it was you know people people died and um, the conditions in the in the clinic it could barely be called a clinic it was so poorly maintained you know, there were just, uh, you know, the remains of the, of the fetus weren't handled correctly. And um, it, it apparently was really just gross. And that was a, um, a, a something that should never have gone on and gave abortion 
a terrible name in the uh, in the in the city, but it was because um, you know there was the, there was no oversight, and um, if it if it's if they're legal and run well, they should they should be open to inspection and um, treated like any other medical medical facility. They should be run cleanly and safely for both the uh, for the uh, people, everyone who comes in. Was this clinic, was all this happening during the Trump administration? Because I know you did a great cartoon about um, how Trump, had, his administration had passed law like cutting at budget budget for family planning? Um, no, this, this one was before Trump. You can't blame it on Trump, I'm afraid. And, and also Philadelphia is a, a complete democratic city. Um, nobody, I mean, I mean there, there, there may be eight Republicans <laughs> in Philadelphia and they don't put up much of a fight, um, uh, which is a bad thing because you know, you need to be challenged, uh, people need to be challenged and kept, uh, kept to their word. And um, this, this was not a, a good scene. Um, so. Oh, yeah, that's something that people forget, like in blue states, like even if, like, yeah, we need abortion to be kept legal so we can, you know, make sure the clinics are around because even if you can fly from Texas to like New York, there are only so many clinics open because they keep being shut down due to intense made up, you know, like there's regulation and then there are like rules that are made up specifically with abortion clinics. So they have to close. Well, I think, I, I think this is, this will be an interesting to see what, what happens, but, um, uh, Certainly, there are a number of states where abortion will stay legal, and um, uh, it's just that they're far away from Texas, probably. Yeah. And, and making it really difficult for one person, you know, you could say, well, oh, you know, I, I'm in Dallas, but I'd have to go to New York City to get an abortion. That's, that's not an easy thing to do if you don't have the means to do it. No, it's not. Let me look at my list of questions again. So, well, there are other things other than abortion. That I've oh, absolutely. I'm pretty clear on that. I mean, most of my cartoons are not on uh, on that, but uh, a lot of them are on women and women in politics. And um, you know, uh, I did one, you know, I did them on the Women's March after the Trump victory and on the, um, the election where, um, you know, we're, we're like 26% women in the House of Representatives. It's like, woohoo, we're, we're all the way at 26% after all this time. Um, and, you know, just just marking occasions of women's progress is another thing that I like to do in the cartoons that are, um, uh, I think, you know, it's progress that Amy Conan Barrett can be on the Supreme Court. I mean, you know, it's not been that long since, uh, since women started on the court. Um, so, you know, 
progress comes in different forms and shapes. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. Like, I just think about just what women couldn't do a few, like, 30 years ago or 40 years ago, and I just, like, my brain wants to seize up because it's just so mind-boggling to me. It really speaks to how, like, fragile rights are. Well, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's um, uh, ascent to the, the court, you know, with all the discrimination she faced, both as a woman and as a Jewish woman, uh, early in her career was just uh, amazing that she persevered and uh, uh, got as far as she did. But, um, you know, no, no offense to the women who are the other women who have come on more recently, but it's a lot easier now. And, and people are, um, you know, even Republicans were wanting to have a woman um, to put forward on the court. So that, that's progress. And on that note of progress and rights, do you, I know free speech is also a big topic for you. Do you have any thoughts on free speech and how it impacts cartooning or impacts women in the arts? Um, well, I, the book that uh, I did with Jonathan Zimmerman, his, he's a history professor at the University of Pennsylvania. And his argument is that every single um, um, sort of movement for justice in, the, in US history, whether it was for civil rights or women's rights or uh, other rights for others, um, has been because people use their free speech. Um, and uh, they, you know, that certainly, uh, like, if you, if you read Frederick Douglass's uh, speeches. I mean, that guy was like a speech machine. <laughs> he was so eloquent. And he spoke everywhere all the time, traveled all over the northern part of the country, giving these, these long, long sermon-like lectures. Um, and he, I mean, he, he used his free speech to do that. Um, and the, the book, points out like Emma Goldman, who was a, a early radical woman in um, the early 1900s, um, got shipped off because of her, her speech. And she, she has been very, she was very eloquent about uh, uh, protesting it. She was also a big advocate for women's rights and um, uh, the right for women's health and contraception. So um, that, um, you know, that's the basic premise of the book. And one of the people who really um, broke open the free speech more recently was a, a young woman who was only in high school named Mary Beth Tinker, who wore an anti-war armband during the Vietnam War. And um, she, uh, she took her, it, she was told she couldn't wear it uh, by the school and she took her case to the Supreme Court where she won. And um, she said, you know, she was speaking to a class, Jonathan, one of Jonathan Zimmerman's classes and um, the, the, the 
uh, the kids are all like, well, what about hurtful speech? What about, you know, speech that's negative about people? And she said, I was a 13, you know, I, I don't, can't remember, maybe 15 year old kid. And I wore a, an armband against the war in a school where a lot of the people had relatives who were fighting in Vietnam. Do you think they thought that wasn't hurtful? You know, they, they were deeply hurt by it. And that's why they wanted me not to, not to wear it. But um, she said that, you know, and it took a lot of internal strength on her part, obviously, to, to stand up to that. But again, um, strong speech hurts feelings. And um, you can't just use that as a, as a uh, metric to say, well, you know, you can't, you therefore can't say anything. And I, I think she, she was like, <laughs> she rocked. She was a great kid and still with us. I need to look her up because I've never actually heard of her. So another cool lady to add to my list of women in history. Yeah, well, she's still around. You should call her up. She'd be a great person to interview. I'd like to, I, you tell me when she, when you do it, because I'd like to hear her. I will keep note of that then. Mm -hmm. So yeah, awesome, actually. Yeah, like, I think about free speech and women's rights a lot lately, because I've been reading a lot in women's history, and just, like, the oldest law codes in existence that I've known of are, like, these cones or something from, like, Mesopotamia. Yep. And one of the laws is that if a woman speaks out of turn, her teeth will be smashed with a brick. Ah. And it's just like, oh my god. This was like, and so this idea that like women not being allowed to speak up for our rights and our autonomy mm -hmm. is so threatening that it's like violence against women who speak up is like built into our understanding of civilization is like a big concept to process. But it just, it really hits home how important free speech is and how, like, actually progressive our democracy is in the grand scheme of things. Like, Mary Beth Tinker would not have been allowed to wear that armband and walked out of the school on her two feet in much older times, so. Well, the, I mean, Alice Paul was, uh, she was put in prison for her uh, outspokenness, but she got out. She did a hunger strike and got out of prison. Um, no. Margaret Sanger would go and speak on corners and get dragged off the stage and come back and speak again. Um, and she, she was, she was a fireball. Um, you know, I know she has <clears throat> now um, a little shade being cast on her for her eugenics uh, opinions, but I mean, she was the one who really fought for birth control for poor women in the early 1900s. I don't know enough about Margaret saying in a comment on her like work with the eugenics movement other than I'd have to do research. I will say that she is super important to women's rights and histories because I mean the birth the pill I mean it's one of the most important inventions of the past century like the amount of women's lives it saved is immeasurable. Well she was she didn't she was a little before the pill but she did have other uh, birth control methods. Right, right, yes. That she pushed. <clears throat> yeah, so just more of the story, kids. History is complicated, but you still got to speak up and use your voice because change well, will make people angry no matter what. 
Well, and the other thing is, I, you know, right now we've got a purity movement going on. So, you know, we're not no longer for uh, Margaret Sanger after all she did for women's rights. And um, people are complicated. People have, <laughs> we have blind spots all over the place from the age we grew up. I mean, there are cartoons I've done that I would not do now. And um, I think that there are things that many people have said that they maybe not would would not be saying them again now, but it, in the overall overall arc of someone's life, they've made huge contributions to um, our our progress, and um, I hope to, that those stay in balance. Uh, I mean, one of the people who's been um, uh, sort of uh, criticized was the greatest cartoonist in American history, who's Thomas Nast, who was um, a German immigrant to New York, who um, fought uh, through his cartoons against um, the big money interests in New York City at the time, the oligarchs, and also uh, for Abraham Lincoln and for the Civil War and against slavery. and. Um, uh, Lincoln called him my best recruiting sergeant. He did so many cartoons and I mean he was a fantastic draftsman. He was unbelievable. He just beautiful, beautiful, beautiful work. Um, so he did all this and the, you know, we had the war obviously. Um, and then in Reconstruction, his career was kind of on the wane and um, he did some cartoons about uh, the new legislators in the South, some of whom were black, and the car the caricatures that he did of these black legislators, you wouldn't do that now. They're they look real any kind of uh, stereotypes, mm -hmm. but that that was not the work. That was not the main body of his work. But um, he's being stripped of his reputation now because of them, and it's just to me. Um, a misreading of a person's life, that the bulk of their life was spent working for, um, against slavery, for equality. And um, uh, I, you know, I think, I think we have to have some balance and humility about um, uh, human beings. Definitely. Like, I feel bad for the kids who are on TikTok because they have the voices and faces associated with their accounts. And like in 10 years, they're gonna look back and just, it, it's gonna, it's so much harder to be allowed to grow authentically and not be like, have your feet put to the fire because when you were younger, you said things that may have not been quote unquote PC or may not have been the most sensitive or nuanced because- Because well, you were a teenager and you were supposed to say stupid things. <laughs> And like even adults will say stupid things or be insensitive because we all have blind spots and we well, all have to I, grow. I don't personally, but <laughs> you can speak for yourself, Taylor. That's fair. <laughs> you're right, you're right. But yeah, it's like, I look at back on some of my writing and I'm like, I'm glad that writing was ever published because I would have said and done things that would have been hurtful to other people because I wasn't thinking about how it could be read or 
what biases I had internalized that I brought to the work. And it's just, it's why one of the reasons when th a work is published or talked about, I, I wish the year it came out was included because I can help better under like, you know, contextualize, you know, a cartoon published today may have a very different tone or depiction than something published 40 years ago because times Time change. Yeah, exactly. That's, uh, how old are you? I'm 24. Wait a minute, and you have things you're embarrassed about? You're too young. <laughs> uh, but congratulations. Thanks. You're obviously on a growth chart. Yeah. Well, we've been chatting rather a long time. Are you, uh, do you have more, uh, any other questions, any places we haven't gone? Um, no, we covered all the main bases, I think, and I just want to say thank you again for coming and talking about the stuff. I know it's like really intense, complicated stuff to unpack, but I think it's really brave and fruitful to do so. Well, I, anybody who, you know, is listening and is curious, please look up my cartoons and you can see which ones you like and which ones you don't. And also, I've done them on, I have other concerns. <laughs> uh, education, I've done uh, just equity in education is one of my um, real, real uh, cl close to the heart concerns. Also the environment I've done over the years, many, many cartoons on all different uh, aspects of, of, of the environment and guns and violence is another huge area. I've done literally hundreds of cartoons on gun violence. So um, I, I, a cartoonist, I mean, one of the great luxuries is we're not in a silo. We don't do just one topic. Yes, I'm a woman and yes, I'm concerned about women's issues, but I'm concerned about issues that affect everyone and everybody on the planet. Um, uh, you know, we all want to have safe, healthy lives, and we want one or two birds left <laughs> at the end of our time on Earth. Um, so uh, one of the things that I love doing is talking with the cartoons to an audience. And so if you, you know, if people have a group um, and want a speaker about uh, women's issues or environment, education, whatever it is, please keep me in mind because I love to show the cartoons, love to talk to audiences and we get good discussions going. Awesome. And on that positive note, everyone, if you can get vaccinated, that's very important. Continue to wear masks, continue to social distance. And I hope you all have a good day or good night, depending on when you're listening. Sydney, you may sign us off. Thank you. And, um, you know, you can look at cartoons while wearing a mask. <laughs> no one spreads COVID by looking at cartoons. So look at as many different cartoons as you can. Good for your blood pressure. Indeed. I forgot I'm going to get, give our quick read off of our fundamentals podcast list because we have a bunch of podcasts on many different topics. So we have our bark, no dice, anime attache, Beneath the Screen of the Ultra Critics, Cannon Fodder, Faith Forge Academy, Ladies First, of, of course, That's Haram, and Right to Survive podcast. Thank you again, everyone, for listening. 
Thank you again for Sydney for coming on. I hope you all have a good day. Thank you.